I've all, I enjoyed the privilege tw now twice of following undulation and presentation, and I can tell you, is as nerve-wracking as you think. <laughs> So, on this principle of sort of following on from the discussion uh, yesterday, I think there's actually going to be large parts of the presentation I don't have to go over because we've already had some discussion of some subprime uh, mortgage lending and is this really the crisis of, of uh, the subprime borrower or is that just what popped the bubble? bubble? Um, basically, I conceived of this paper because the subprime borrower had achieved somewhat of a celebrity status. Uh, in the context of, the, of this kind of un, unfolding tale of uh, financial woe, where these kind of illiterate, uh, well, financially illiterate, I should say, financially illiterate, um, kind of poor, um, struggling individuals had kind of dealt a, a fatal blow to um, these highly sophisticated, extremely wealthy, and as we're always told, very clever, um, you know, financial <laughs> actors. And I wanted to kind of problematize, you know, who are these, who are these people that are subprime borrowers um, and what has been their experience of um, the period before the crisis, which was one of, uh, you know, seven years pretty much since the uh, dot-com bubble uh, in the period after that, seven years of, of financial market growth, financialized growth. And before that, you know, Joe Stiglitz's great phrase, the roaring 90s you know, of this Goldilocks economy, um, you know, with, you know, in, Amer in America in particular, but um, low inflation, uh, expanding macroeconomic growth. So what were this, what was the subprime borrower's experience of this time before, obviously, um, the crisis and now after? Um, so I think the issue um, that I'm um, coming into is the term subprime, which I think is kind of taken a little bit too much at face value. So very technically, the term, you know, to be a subprime borrower, you need to have a FICO score of less than 600. So um, FICO is obviously the kind of industry standard. There are all kinds of variations, and they're all proprietary, exactly how they spit out the numbers. But um, basically, I go into a little bit of detail about how you get such a score. But it's kind of employment record, uh, income levels, how much debt you already have, how many accounts have you had in the past and closed, uh, so that's your attrition rate, um, you know, have you, been, uh, have you ever paid uh, late fees? So these, these kind of categories to generate a score. Um, so these sort of myriad of employment income and credit uh, history characteristics are used to kind of to generate an overall picture of, of credit worthiness. But I think that overall um, I probably my, I would say in contrast to Paul's presentation yesterday, I, I definitely don't um, put as much stock in the calculative technologies that are present in credit scoring. I really think that credit, uh, the whole mechanism of, of risk char characteristics and applying them to individuals, which I can talk about later, which I found out through a different route. You know, this is not a reliable technology. Credit, you know, if anyone's pulled their credit report, you'll see that, um, the credit rating agency tells you right away, before they even give you the score, uh, this is a mechanism you need to go through to fix what's on the report. They know that what they're giving you is uh, a mishmash of data that's incomplete, often has duplicates. You will have more than one credit report with one credit rating agency, so any one individual can have up to six credit scores based on where they're getting their information from. So I don't really think it's a very reliable 
technology, and I don't think the surveillance c capacity of it is particularly um, powerful, but I do think um, that it, the technology has been used, but not in the same way um, as some, you know, as a, a lot of issues about consumer lending have kind of purported it to be. Instead, I want to move kind of beyond this taking, referring to these groups of people as subprime and asking who are they? Who are the socioeconomic groupings within American society that make up the subprime borrower? Because um, in, in one sense, constantly referring to them as their risk score, you know, their risk characteristic or their credit score, um, I find is, um, takes it a little too seriously. So in this, what I found uh, in the course of my research was that essentially a huge portion of subprime borrowers are essentially low-income households, those under the age of 35, so the young, young generation, and uh, senior citizens, so that's those uh, who are retired and over 65. And I would have very much liked to have done a comparison of the US and the UK, but unfortunately the UK has absolutely no data um, to verify anything about household finan financial situation. So instead, I use the survey of consumer finances uh, uh, from the Federal Reserve to look at, from 1989 to 2004, these different groups and the, their picture of um, their, fi their financial picture. And I focus specifically on unsecured <coughs> debt, which is non-mortgage debt. And I did that mainly because there's already a lot out there about mortgage lending and borrowing and so on. And, but more particularly, because when looking at the household financial situation, there's a very um, confused picture about the degree to which mortgage lending is tied to an asset and, and is having a mortgage uh, financial security, you know, is having a house financial security, as we see, you know, you can, is having a second property that you're letting out, in some interpretations can be seen as, as a very good kind of uh, healthy household portfolio, but in practicality it can be, um, you know, in some cases that can actually ruin somebody. So I just wanted to take the picture of, 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 of lending based on, you know, tied to assets out and just look at unsecured lending because it's pretty clear that this is, um, you know, this is lines of credit, installment credit, car loans, and in the case of the young student loans. So these, this is the types of expensive borrowing that are uh, undertaken for consumption of particular goods, you know, goods that are not assets, basically. So... <coughs> Yeah, so why does it matter? Um, why does unsecured debt matter? Well, it matters because I think that it tells a particular, uh, when, you, when you see the figures, you'll see a particular account of, of distress, financial distress amongst these subprime groups, um, the old, the young, and the poor. Uh, and it shows the degree to which they're using very expensive credit to finance um, their standard of living, you know, their basic living needs as well. Um, and in that sense, um, it shows a, not only a great degree of inequality, that growing financial inequality, but um, you know the real, real problems. So, uh, actually, before I go there, um, basically, this deepening financial inequality and financial instability within subprime groups, um, I'm trying to account for how rather than why. Um, these groups have become integrated into the financialized process or financialization basically. So in this great kind of, then uh, the roaring 90s and so on, uh, Goldilocks economy and financialization, um, subprime groups became obviously um, from, you know, up until 2007, highly integrated. And I want to look at how rather than why they were integrated. 
and these are two different, very different questions. The how question is to look at the processes that integrate um, households. So how was it that households were, became part? Whereas why is, offers um, some sort of, uh, you know, in the one case, I, I feel I'd have to provide some evidence for the reasons households gave, some qualitative evidence of, you know, why were they boring so much? Um, and I can't provide that. More, you know, more precariously, I would have to rely on a structural account of, well, boring was essentially inevitable because the various uh, macroeconomic conditions made it so that households had to borrow. This, you know, so I want to steer away from the why and look at the how because there are many, many different ways in which, you know, this is an entire sector, the household sector. There are many different reasons why they did what they did, um, but I'm just looking at how they were able to. Um, or, you know, the, the, the processes that were affecting them. So, in that sense, I'm trying to say don't read too much into <laughs> what I'm trying to say, because yeah, that it ends up being some bigger question about um, is this the end of capitalism, and I have no idea. Um, so, what are these three processes? What are the how? Um, firstly, there are the transformations in retail banking, which operated with li little regulatory oversight. Um, but that essentially uh, made lenders dependent on, on the type of financial inequality and debt, uh, indebtedness that we have. They became dependent on these reliable streams of uh, outstanding debt payments to facilitate securitization, but also you know, for their own credit stock, basically. Otherwise, you get the situation that Andrew talks about, which, in which you're just servicing the debts you already have. You can't issue anything new. Um, secondly, subprime. Uh, groups experienced uh, a terminal decline in, in real income growth, the rate of real income growth. So there was a, a degree of income stagnation. Uh, and this took different forms, obviously, for the young, the retired, and um, the low incomes. You know, for young people, it was, um, you know, the, the low incomes they get in, in, as they're entering um, the job market. For the elderly, it was, uh, you know, the after you've retired and the reduction of legacy costs and corporate restructuring, you know, decreased um, and declining savings rates, uh, investment payouts and so on, decreased the rate of <laughs> income into the household. And thirdly, um, the receding um, state, receding state support in America saw a huge increase in the cost of living. So for the young, it was education. I myself have an enormous student loan. Uh, as, as, as the cost of education was rising, uh, young people were turning to borrowing to finance their education, but also uh, to kind of get onto the property ladder but, and everyday expenses uh, because of the low-income jobs. The elderly as well, medical costs is a huge issue and, uh, for low incomes. Uh, what period are you talking about? Now? Oh yeah, sorry. This is um, yes, you're right. 1989 mm -hmm. to 2004, which is when the data is available. So what is interesting about this is that I'm talking about th these are a financial picture of the of subprime households up until 2004, which is not even in the, the, when this subprime borrowing reached its zenith in unsecured and mortgage lending. So we can see that there is quite a protracted period of. Um, uh, already before 2004 of, of, of indebtedness and so on. So, uh, you know, this renovation, um, innovations of retail banking, I'll kind of breeze over because you guys have all heard it and just focus on what I think is a little bit different. So again, I've already talked about risk-based pricing. Uh, I'm a little bit more convinced, well, let me start with asset-backed security. So private credit creation. 
Uh, my line is asset-backed securities is private credit creation. The bank's ability to recapitalize loan pools allowed them to, um, this always happens, I don't even get to the case study, allowed them to create uh, credit uh, within their own business model. Um, I think that profit uh, profiling, the ability to use credit scores to target particular markets for the most profitable expansion um, was probably uh, how these two processes integrated um, and this sort of brave new world of structured finance. So I just gave an example of how uh, different prices uh, for yeah, of credit cards, how the pricing mechanism of different subgroups makes it so that those um, that pay the highest interest, so subprime groups are often subsidizing everyone else who has 0% uh, or low introductory rate or product benefits cards and so on. Um, this is sort of the general increase for all families in, in debt. We have a huge variation between the median and the mean and that was that's mainly because those that are in debt have such high levels of debt that it skews it upwards. So this is financial inequality basically. Those that are solvent and those aren't. I've already sort of talked about this so I'll skip straight to the case studies. So. When we look at low-income groups, this is my point, from 1989 to 2004, we see that their total amount of outstanding balances, this is how much they owe for unsecured debt, that's credit card balances, lines of credit, installment debt, and vehicle loans, um, has already grown. You know, for, these are for people earning less than 20000 In 1989, it was already just under 13000 So we are, there was already a, a problem of, of consumer credit. Of, of a consumer credit society. But by 2004, it was 53,000. I mean, I checked this four times, trust me. Um, but again, this huge variation between the median and the mean. So since we're talking about subprime groups, the mean is, is probably, the average is probably a better indication because to be subprime, by definition, you have to have, you know, a, a big part of that is existing debt. Um, that's part of what makes you a sub, you know, part of the risk uh, classification, although there's no exact, uh, you know, ability to put these categories uh, across, you know, from subprime to the survey consumer finances, but it shows that there is, there is already a, a, before even the zenith of the subprime crisis, low-income households were highly in debt, non-mortgage debt. Um, this is for, um, 20 to 39,000. It's not quite as bad, but you see already in 1992 there was a huge spike, you know, during the recession. So how much they, these groups even recovered from the 92 recession uh, to me is uh, not clear. They weren't participating in financialization uh, uh, in a way in which they were benefiting from it. You know, they were always sort of uh, struggling to survive. Um, Can I just check what? Sorry? These, these debt totals. Yeah. Could you put at like 50,000? Yeah. What this one? ratio is that of um, annual income for the, say, the average or the median? Um, What's the ratio? I don't. Yeah, I don't have that here. I mean, because you could do like a whole balance sheet measure, like to include assets. So I've just broken it down by income group. So they have to earn, put their household income is less than twenty thousand to be in this category. This is the bulletin categories. It's called. So you can do it by income quintile or quartile, but this is, for those earning less than 20,000, this is their reported outstanding balances. So the average might be, say, four times, three or four times. 
Well, yeah, in this case, yeah. Um, yeah, that's interesting. I'll write that one down. I'll reject it. Um, when we look at um, students, well, I sort of looked at just as under 35s, we see here that um, dwindling state support uh, for uh, higher education <coughs> in terms of, you know, uh, directly to universities, which cause them to raise tuition fees, but also subsidies for low-income students or students who needed help. Uh, the replacement of student loans, so student loans began to replace state subsidies. Um, and the use of credit cards and the marketing of credit cards as yuppie food stamps um, for college students. Basically, qualitative research, not associated with the survey of consumer finances, so done by Nellie May, which is the um, student loan provider, guarantor, or whatever. Um, but the National Student Loan Survey and so on, these sort of qualitative surveys I looked at, and you can see that basically uh, debt is used to get an education, but also as you know, this term, the plastic safety net. So when, when young people are away from home and the, you know, a window breaks, the credit card pays the $200 or they, their car breaks down, you know, it's sort of these, you know, they can manage, but they need credit to, um, their student loan will manage their basic living standards, but they also use very expensive credit to kind of plug the gaps, which is the um, quite, a, quite, a, quite a consistent uh, finding across subprime groups that credit is essentially being used, very expensive credit is being used as a plastic safety net. So where there is no longer support, no recourse, uh, debt is being used uh, not to acquire assets and move up the ladder, but to just get by. Um, and this is uh, consumer debt outstanding for those uh, under the age of 35. So we can see that, again, 2004 there is when uh, it's already peaking. So. 2007 data won't be available till the end of next year. So I can't wait. Um, <laughs> and I just want to show average monthly repayment. This is the cost. Now, the point here as well is about kind of declining incomes. You know, so people under the age of 35 in 1989, you know, the type of income you were getting when you, in your first job, um, you know, there's a lot more uh, uh, getting your first job and flexible employment and all this stuff. But you see, $831 is uh, the average, again, not, so it's the mean monthly repayment of all outstanding debt, uh, unsecured debt. So, you know, they're talking about why, you know, if, you, if we were in the UK, you're wondering why young people can't buy a house, you know, if, if we had data. But it's the same in the US, you know, why are young people having a hard time getting on the property ladder? Well, they're already servicing uh, education loans and uh, car loans and everything else just to get started in life. Um, now, finally, the worst one, by far the saddest, is the, um, the elderly, the senior citizens, who are using debt to pay for medical costs, prescription drugs, and daily living expenses. And this is basically because the American government has uh, capped Social Security. Uh, first, it was the introduction of CPI indexing, basically creating the CPI to get rid of the cost of servicing uh, Social Security. But that's another story. Um, but basically, you know, 90% of uh, those uh, Americans over the age of 35 have Social Security as their primary source of, of income. Some will have 70, it's their only, but I think yes, 70 is their only source of income, and, and 90 is their primary source. So they may have a small pension, but it won't be as much as Social Security. So they just. Say that again, 90%? Yeah, just. Over the age of what? Over the age of 65, it's in here. 
This is from Social Security. Okay, here we go. Yeah, 91% of persons over the age of 65 or older report Social Security as their major source of income. And 75% is their only source of income. So... That's recent. Uh, yeah, oh, jeez. Yes, I think it's pretty recent. 2004. 2004. So, um, now, yeah, you think that's sad. Look at the, the, the rate of... I could not believe this. I, I was certain this was wrong. I searched, anyway, not, but 650 different graphs because the, they actually produce a graph for every, um, every variable they have, I, and I found that they had it too. So there's this huge spike uh, in the amount of unsecured debt by 2004, which, you know, are we surprised here? Yeah, yeah. Uh, how many people does that represent? I mean, uh, what's, uh, what's the size of the course in which you uh, calculate the Oh, yeah, off the top of my head, it's I, yeah. it's it is it is slightly smaller. You know, obviously the sample size, but yeah. but it has to be bigger than let's say fifty households, or because it's a, it's a whole survey of consumer finances by the Federal Reserve. No, no, I'm, I'm yeah. not talking about the sample. I'm talking about the, the whole category uh, on which this is supposed to. So unsecured debt. What well, the people. How many, how many people are that over sixty-five in America? Oh, in America and, or and in the sample. I mean, this is a mean <laughs> of all the 65 to 74 people. That means of yes. all people age 65 to 74, the mean unsecured debt for all these people is 278,000. Yeah, and it's medical loans mainly, yeah. Yeah, I know, I didn't believe it myself, trust me, I checked. The Federal Reserve has it as well. The, uh, the main thing was borrowing for, Medicare, for prescription medical loans, basically, is the main source of borrowing here. Um, so, who are they borrowing from? Banks, uh, you know the what is it? Uh, Wells Fargo, for example, has a huge medical medical loans. Um, but I just wanted to read. So the so and the interesting thing about this is, and you can see the the strategies that the banks are adopting to to get seniors to pay, which really made me cry. Was that um, it's true? It did. Um, was that they were actually, they have different, um, you know, when they go into delinquency and, and default, um, you know, obviously they, they're more afraid that the person's gonna die because all the debts will be discharged. So they always want the debt to be serviced. So, you know, they actually do market research on how to rattle old people's pages. So, you know, you appeal to their honor, you, you've always paid your debts, haven't you? You know, you don't, and, and they get them to, so they sell them viaticals, which is they get them to sell their life insurance policies um, back to them. Uh, to get money to release, uh, you know, to pay back the debts. You know, and, and you just, if you read it, I mean, you really think this is sick. This is sick to like call up little old ladies and say you have no honor and, and, and how could you do this? So anyway, I'll finish up. Um, so the picture, um, and this is uh, repayments for the over, six, uh, over 65s. Again, $700 and that's why you, that's why you sell your life insurance. Um, so when we move beyond this kind of risk characteristics to understand Sorry. subprime borrowers, I still don't understand. How, how let me just finish. Uh, let how me can finish. a debt of three hundred thousand uh, lead to repayment of seven hundred? Um, oh, because it's um, this is a, a category they use that doesn't uh, that is just monthly repayment. So they ask them how much is your monthly repayment. They're, they don't exactly correlate. Does that make sense? But we'll talk. Uh, I could tell you later. It's just a idiosyncrasy about household balance sheet surveys. Um, 
Anyway, so moving beyond the risk characteristics to understand who the subprime borrowers are and their experience of kind of the roaring 90s of the past seven years of financialized growth, we get quite a uh, different picture of who these, who these people are, but also how they've become integrated, which is through um, a lot of dependence on debt, um, incomes are stagnating, uh, there's less support from the state, R living costs are rising. Um, and essentially, a lot of debt is being used as a sort of plastic safety net, in many ways replacing the type of support that they would have expected um, uh, in decommodified forms, so state or um, quasi-state functions. Um, so I think that it's very safe to kind of say that basically that the subprime, the groups of the subprime became a very profitable avenue for expansion, but also met the needs of kind of the brave new world of structured finance. They have clearly very reliable uh, rates of indebtedness, which will promise income streams over the long term. Um, this is highly profitable, but also became a need uh, um, for many of the uh, retail uh, specialized lending out, uh, kind of outfits. In that sense, uh, I don't think that um, this is really an issue of kind of financial illiteracy or um, kind of incredulous borrowers. Um, I think that this, you know, this expansion to subprime groups is really um, about broader structural inequalities uh, that have been quite prolonged and persistent. So that's me.